Chris. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 42. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Dave Brownsound, guitar-playing shredder for Sum 41. We are talking all about growing up in Canada and discovering Metallica, his first Metallica riffs, his favorite go-to riffs when he's warming up now, Robert Trujillo, Jason Newstead, Kirk's guitar playing, Lars's drumming, all sorts of fun stuff. And of course, we take a deep dive into MTV icon Metallica, early 2000s event that introduced Rob Trujillo as the new bass player of Metallica, and saw a bunch of artists paying rather dubious homage to the greatest band in the world. Sum 41, who opened the show with a Metallica medley, brought the house down. They were far and away the highlight of the night, other than Metallica themselves, of course. Now, if you listen to the previous episode with Dave's bandmate, Derek, where we also discussed that show, you may recall that I was, in fact, there, as I was a full-time reporter-producer for MTV News in that era, working out of the California office, and that show taped on the Universal Studios lot here in Southern California. My buddy Rob, who runs Metal Injection, sent me an email yesterday Wondering why the MTV Icon Metallica show was the only MTV Icon show that had ever happened. Well, in fact, as I noted when I replied to him, there was a Janet Jackson MTV Icon two years prior to that. Aerosmith episode with a lineup that was just about as confusing as the Metallica lineup, but did also include some 41, backing up Ja Rule and Nelly. That 2001 Janet Jackson event featured Outkast doing, of course, Ms. Jackson, Destiny's Child, Macy Gray, Sync, Pink, Usher, Maya, Janet herself, and Buck Cherry. Even weirder and sort of more awful was that Aerosmith episode, which despite having Sum 41 as the backing band for Nelly, Ja Rule, and DJ Clue, featured Pink doing Janie's Got a Gun, Shakira doing Dude Looks Like a Lady, Kid Rock doing some terrible medley, Train doing Dream On, and Papa Roach doing Sweet Emotion. The choices for the 2003 MTV icon Metallica were even more strange, perhaps. We had Stain doing Nothing Else Matters, Avril Lavigne doing Fuel, Snoop Dogg doing Sad But True, Korn doing One, which you might think would have been cool, but actually really wasn't. And of course, the worst defenders of the night, Limp Bizkit, uh, slogging their way through a terrible, muddled, edited version of Welcome Home Sanitarium. The night finished with Metallica doing a medley of Hit the Lights, Inner Sandman, Blacken, Creeping Death, Battery, and Frantic. But certainly the best MTV Icon show was what appears to have been the final one, which took place in 2004. And of course, it looks like it only aired in the UK and Europe. That was MTV Icon The Cure, which was hosted by Marilyn Manson. Uh, Blink-182 opened the show with a couple of Cure songs, including one where Robert Smith himself guested. Now, remember, this is 2004, so this was kind of the dark emo phase of Blink-182. AFI did a pretty faithful version of Just Like Heaven, backed by my good friend Marta of Bleeding Through on keyboards. A band called Razor Light from the UK did Boys Don't Cry. And my favorite performance of the night, the Deftones doing If Only Tonight We Could Sleep. The Cure played three songs, including Friday I'm In Love. I could and perhaps will do an entire episode about MTV icon Metallica as I have a lot of memories that didn't come up in either conversation with the Sum 41 dudes. Despite each of these episodes being roughly an hour long and filled with great stories, 
I have some personal recollections from the day of rehearsals the day before, as well as some stuff that happened the night of the show. If that's something you think you'd be interested in hearing, let me know. Maybe shoot me a message on social media or shoot an email to speakanddestroy at superherohq.com. Please, I'm going to ask you, and I'll make it really quick, if you haven't done so already, go into Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Speak and Destroy and leave a nice little review and a five-star rating. Those really do help with people discovering the podcast, with the overall visibility of the show, and it just makes me feel a little twinge of self-validation when I read the lovely things you have to say. So here it is, my conversation with Dave Brownsound of Sum 41. This is Speak and Destroy. producer at MTV News you know, in the early 2000s. Uh, so I was actually working in the Santa Monica office when MTV icon Metallica took place. Um, so I was oh, there cool. for uh, rehearsals the day before. And then, um, you know, one of the things that stands out to me about that, and obviously we'll go, we'll go backwards, but just to talk about that for a second. Yeah. It, you know, almost every, gosh, not even almost every, I mean, in retrospect, every band, that performed there was kind of a, huh? What? In terms yeah. of a Metallica tribute show. And I think there's something about maybe some 41 having, you know, maybe the, the expectations, the bar was pretty low and you're kind of underdogs and then you're opening the show and you just destroyed. I mean, and you, you in particular were up there in your bad brain shirt and uh, just crushed it. And without, you know, getting into the nuances or, or calling out any names or anything, it was by far, far and away the best performance of that night. And the most, you know, the only, in my opinion, the only one that was really worthy <laughs> of, uh, oh, of the occasion. Thanks, man. Thank you. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're, we're all Metallica fans, right? So that, that's huge. That's a, that's a massive compliment. It's also the one that's memorable now, you know, for all the right reasons that you still remember when I think about that show. I think about, you know, the Sum 41 medley. So let's take it back to the beginning. And uh, what were some of your first, you know, the first kind of songs you heard around the house or musical people in your family or any kind of, uh, you know, those early encounters where you realized, hey, music is a really important thing to me and, and feels like it's going to be important to my life. Actually, this uh, this story I've gotten to tell uh, quite a bit, which is which is pretty cool. I I uh, ended up getting a uh, basket of CDs from my uncle, and I I just like freshly got my first CD player with like speakers that I thought sounded cool. It was like a neat little graphic five band EQ on the uh, on the unit too. So I was like I was all pumped up to get into the world of uh, CDs because um, they were brand new at the time. And um, he came over and he's like, yo, nephew, check this out. So he 
just hands me this basket and it's just filled with like straight up like classic rock CDs. Tons of stuff all the way from like Led Zeppelin to Foreigner to Genesis to Metallica. Um, and when I first picked up a CD out of there that I that really caught my eye, it was uh, Led Zeppelin 3. So I put it in and uh, that particular pressing, the Emily song is number one. And it just hit me real hard because it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So I, I heard the first vocal uh, and just like shut, like press stop. And I was like, no, 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 that's way too evil to be listening to. And then, you know, eventually I kept on going back, going back. And, and you know, as, a, as an eight-year-old kid, it, it left a heavy impression on me. And um, eventually, as I was going through the CDs, um, I came across Master of Puppets, which was a CD that um, my cousin had given me to uh, to borrow. Uh, probably about uh, two, maybe two, three months prior to getting this basket of CDs, and um, he he was just in love with Cliff Burton uh, being a bass player. Wow! Yeah. And uh, just hearing, like, hearing Orion, hearing Master of Puppets, hearing how fast they played uh, Damage Incorporated and stuff like that, that record really left a lasting impression on me. And from there, of course, I discovered Ride the Lightning and Kill Em All. But uh, my, my first real solid experience with Metallica would have been uh, Master of Puppets record. Wow, and about how old were you at that time? Uh, I would have been around eight or nine years old. Wow. So, yeah, That's yeah. killer. I would, I would That's guess, killer. I would guess more towards eight, but um, because Puppets was six, 86, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, around then. That's so killer. And to get and to have people in your family that are turning you on to that so young is amazing. And yeah, so, I mean, and, and contem- yeah, they were a you rhythm, know. They were rhythm section combo. Is, uh, the my... Uh, younger cousin was a bass player and his older brother was a drummer oh wow yeah they would play at the local pizza place all the time they were first they were a band called shade and then i think they changed their name to something more metal like nemesis <laughs> nemesis is a pretty great metal name yeah now and now if you called your band that it would be like nemesis but like without the vowels or something i know i know unfortunately kids in the hall they they, uh, they, call, they called their band Armada or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So now it kind of falls in that category. You're falling in love with this music. You're discovering Zeppelin. Master of Puppets is making its impact. Where did uh, picking up a guitar come in? An actual guitar came a little bit later than when I first fell in love with it. Um, when I when I first really remember playing guitar, it was me unscrewing the uh, leg from a chalkboard. <laughs> nice. That, uh, <laughs> that my uh, parents had bought for me, and uh, it was just like straight, and then the legs beat out, so it looked like a flying V, like like uh, like the pictures of Jimi Hendrix and stuff like that. Yeah. So I would pick that up, turn on a record, like just put it on and pretend I was playing guitar. But when I actually started learning, would have been um, it probably would have been around thirteen, fourteen years old. Um, I went to one of those uh, pizza place shows that I was talking about that, that uh, my cousins and nemesis would play. And uh, I picked up the rhythm guitar player's uh, Ibanez. I believe it was a Silver Cadet. And he just came up to me. He was like, hey, do you want to learn how to play guitar? I was like, yeah. And he's like, okay, I'll, I'll get you started. And he um, 
he tapped out some stuff for me. I was garbage. I never learned properly, put it down. And then, uh, I ended up at my cousin's house. The, uh, the bass player I was talking about, his name's Vaughn. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Vaughn was playing Battletoads and, uh, they had this kind of strat copy called a stinger. Uh huh. And I, I put it on my lap. I started kind of playing around on it. My cousin pressed pause on uh, Battletoads. He came to, came to me. He's, he's like, yo, man, you, you don't play with the guitar like that. Like you, tilted up like i had it down on my lap like jeff healy right i was gonna yeah. say you're like i don't know man i just saw this movie roadhouse <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, how this exactly. other guy had it <laughs> yeah like missing throats everywhere and the guy played guitar like this <laughs> and uh so he tilted it up and he he sat me down with a magazine and it was um uh, one of the tabs in this magazine which happened to be called guitar magazine mm-hmm. uh was this song by a band called anthrax and it was uh, caught in a mosh. Oh, nice. So nice. the first riff I ever really learned and committed to was actually caught in a mosh by Anthrax. That is so awesome. <laughs> what a great... Oh, man. I mean, you were immediately then caught in a mosh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, dude, my, my cousin, like, he, he just assimilated me immediately. Like, there was no, no wasting time with him. Man, a couple of years ago, I was at Nam and was kind of... Uh, in a, like a hallway, I mean, I guess you would call it backstage, but it was, you know, I was, I was with an artist and we were trying to get from one area of the place to another. And then there were like three other groups of handlers and artists doing the same thing. We all sort of converge and we're in this like pile for a minute. And uh, yeah. I look over and one of the guys I'm brushing shoulders with is Scott Ian. And everyone, yeah, and everyone that's colliding with each other is, uh, is, uh, silent so it's like it's all happening quietly and i just go <laughs> man it's kind of like we're all caught in a mosh oh dude. and he didn't <laughs> laugh <laughs> oh no everyone else laughed but he didn't laugh i was like oh man think about it though think about it though man like how many times he's probably been that's <laughs> been quoted or indeed. something else or indeed yeah somebody's been like hey man quit being antisocial or something like that right yeah, or he's he's like he's like yeah, that was funny. Not, <laughs> <laughs> I bet you think you're the man. Okay, so. yeah, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> dude, yeah, that's a great first riff. Uh, what was your first Metallica riff that you learned? First Metallica riff would have been one. I ended up picking up that piece of paper that uh, oh, my cousin's guitar player had yeah. tapped out for me. And he was like, listen, if you learn this riff, you'll be good at guitar. And I was like, all right. He's like, you know, Cotton Amash is all good and well, but, you know, use that piece of paper that I gave you. So he tabbed out the clean section for one, and then he tabbed out the, uh, the, you know, the heavy section, the really, really heavy section, not the, uh, not the chorus. So that, I mean, it took me a while to really grasp that because I just couldn't get the speed up and my hands would just crap out as soon as I tried to even get that fast. But uh, that would have been the first Metallica riff. And what's great about that song as a first song is it really sort of has it all. You know, it covers, it runs the gamut from like that clean part to, like you said, the, the chorus and the verses and then the, the super gnarly breakdown at the end and super fast stuff and the solos. It's like, yeah, you could learn so many different shades of rock guitar playing from that one song oh man yeah and then from there it just 
it just went like it it just kind of took off from there i i couldn't i couldn't get enough especially uh with with a band like metallica who it's just bad boy riff after bad boy riff like mm-hmm. i would i would sit there and and just learn rewind learn rewind and uh i, I gotta say like i would probably like blame them for the fact that their wine button on my cd player went <laughs> that's awesome yeah so they kind of owe me one I, I was just discussing this with a friend of mine earlier today how uh how many different times we've bought each record and how many different formats <laughs> you know like oh i own master right? puppets on cassette and then on cd and i also got vinyl and then i had another yeah. vinyl when i lost that one and then i <laughs> yeah and uh yeah then iTunes, and then, and like, then the collector's yeah. edition, and yeah. <laughs> oh, they digitally remastered it. I don't yeah. know what that means. I'll grab that too. Yeah, exactly. I don't know what that means. I might not even open it, but I want it. That's <laughs> uh, killer. Totally. So, when you put on your guitar right now, and you're warming up uh, in the green room or something, or you're sound checking, do you have some go-to Metallica riffs that are just likely to come out of your hands? Dyer's Eve every day. Oh, nice, nice. I gotta play Dyer's Eve. Uh, just the uh, the intro riff, mm-hmm. uh, the verse, and then uh, sometimes I'll play the um, the breakdown riff. But uh, that's such a good one to warm up to. Good, precise picking and uh, and quick movements with the left hand. Yeah, and uh, man, the way that transition, uh, the way that. To lives to die fades in and all of a sudden it's like surprise yeah right that's so magical and, they, and that was a song that they didn't play live for a long time there was a period where they didn't and then they've, they've come back to it more recent years which is a real treat for me because i think it's my it may not be the best song i i i, have, I, I always find there's a distinction between best and favorite but it's it is my favorite song from that album yeah it's it's such a good song and i i remember uh, we were recording the record chuck uh-huh. And uh, Metallica was playing the forum, and so we uh, we were at Sound City at the time, is what the name of the studio was. Yeah, legendary and, Sound uh, City. That, that's the uh, for people listening who don't know. That's the studio that Dave Grohl did the documentary about. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And we we ended up uh, we ended up going to the show that night, and uh, it was incredible because they actually played Dyer's Eve that night, and they're just like, yeah, we don't play this one that mo- that often, and. Uh, they just they have this approach to playing which is amazing. You don't go and see um uh like overdone theatrics and obvious tracks being played. It, it's like they messed the song up and they started it again. Yes. You know what I mean? And we all we all just appreciated it because it was such a good time. That accessibility and that uh they really I think that's part of the spirit of punk that they brought to metal was bringing it back down to earth for the rest of us. You know, like, oh, these guys are dressed like me and all of my friends and it's real and raw and and urgent sounding and it's not all pomposity and, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and stuff. And, and to, you know, speaking of Dyer's Eve, uh, something I realized about that song just kind of recently Lyrically, it was really the bridge between the first four Metallica albums and then the Black Album and everything they did in the 90s because it's, you know, it was a song that was very autobiographical for Hetfield and very super visceral and personal. And yeah, then, man. You know, yeah. That's the kind a, of stuff they got band, into. 
Yeah, as a fan of Hetfield, I mean, that guy is why I wear black wristbands on stage, right? Like, Mm -hmm. watching, like, listening to him over the years and now being able to watch him a lot more thanks to things like uh, YouTube and and social media and stuff like that. Sure. It's it's been cool for me. I know some people have their reservations about it, but I just, I am glad that, uh, that he seems to be in a good spot. Hell yeah. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, the, the yeah. new Metallica records are coming from a place of love and uh, just a love for the music and the craft. <laughs> are you alive? <laughs> right. <laughs> How exactly. does it feel to be alive? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I love getting to sort of grow with an artist as a fan and, you know, through all the changes yeah. and growing pains. And, you know, one of the things I always note about Metallica and comes up on this podcast a lot, uh, whether you love the band or used to love the band or hate the band anytime they do something whenever they put a record out you know about it because everyone in any area of the rock community is aware of it and has an opinion and that in and of itself speaks volumes to me even with the haters it's like man you're still talking about them though like you still can't resist the magnetic pull of a new metallica record being out and having to say something about it Oh, just... dude, I mean, getting specific, like we, we just did some stuff with, uh, with AP, uh-huh. uh, some guitar solo stuff. And we, you know, man, like I hear some people, you know, getting down on Kirk and stuff like that, but at the same time, those, those same people talking that bullshit will be able to pick out one of his solos in the air exactly. from a hundred yards. You know what I mean? Exactly. So, and oh. probably, and especially the guitar players that talk that bullshit, a lot of them yeah. probably were directly or indirectly influenced by him in the very beginning. Yeah, I oh, did yeah. a, um, I host a uh, Q&A series at the Musicians Institute here in L.A. about once a month. And uh, I call it Inside the Actor's Studio for Bands. And I had, um, I had Joe Satriani there a few months ago. And in the YouTube comments, it's a bunch of people like, oh, Kirk's guitar teacher, huh? Like he needs to take more lessons or just talking shit. And it's like, dude, Kirk Hammett is a fucking wizard. Like he, you know, and he has such a, you know, let's set aside technique and all of that for a minute. And just like you were saying uh, to have a signature sound to be identifiable. I mean, there are a few, there are a few uh, lead guitar players doing solos where you immediately go, Oh, that's that guy. You know, it's like, you know, Megadeth is another one for me where uh, when it's Mustaine and Chris Poland and when it's Mustaine and, and Marty Friedman, you can tell, you know, listening to Hangar 18, you can go, there's Mustaine, there's Friedman, there's Mustaine, there's Friedman, you know, like, you, oh, yeah, you, you know, you know, and it's like, there's not a lot of metal guitar players, you know, Kirk, uh, the guys in Slayer, Tom G. Warrior, like, it, you know, Tom G. Warrior, not a great guitar player. I recognize oh. Tom G. Warrior playing guitar, you know? Like. Of course, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To yeah. find to find our own voice as guitar players, that's that's like that's probably the biggest challenge. Unless, you know, you're someone you're a player that that's just born with it. Yeah. And I and I think those those magicians really stand out when they can really make a guitar speak. I mean when you think about uh, how often you hear about Kirk and the wah pedal. It's like, think about what a feat that is to have a piece of gear like that. So, uh, intri- you know, like just, just so like connected to you, like, you know what I mean? Like, like 
you th- if I hear a wah pedal, I think of Kirk Hammett. If I see Kirk Hammett, I think of yeah, wah pedals. Man. You know, it's like that's an achievement in and of itself. It's and like Hetfield and the Explorer, you know? Yeah, and who didn't, as a guitar player, when uh, they first got their wah pedal? You know what I mean? I, I mean, yeah. well, maybe there are guitar players that, that didn't care for the wah pedal when they got it, but as soon as I got mine, it unlocked a whole new world for me. And it's actually on the new Sum 41 record. It's a massive part of the solos on that because of a huge influence from guys like Kurt. Yeah. Guys like Carrie, guys like Jeff, you know, guys like Holt. Like it's, it's all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I had a uh, Gary Holt on the podcast a little while back. You know, he was saying, and he talks about this in the new, um, murder in the front row documentary uh as well yeah he was saying that to this day the way that he holds a pick you know the way that he plays a power chord kirk hammett literally taught him that like he showed him how to play guitar and then at some point you know handed the keys to the family car of, of exodus over to him and i think that's something by the way um about that documentary that's really great is kirk is such a humble soft-spoken kind of mild-mannered seeming guy he doesn't toot his own horn a lot and as much as you know james and lars and mustaine and a certain group of people are rightly credited with pioneering thrash metal people don't realize that like kirk was the leader of exodus up until the time he left and he was driving the creative train and putting the band together and you know bringing the influences in and uh, he was, you know, a essential ingredient to that whole movement happening in the Bay. And that's like why they got him, <laughs> you know, like that's why they chose Absolutely. him. He wasn't just a random person, you know. Absolutely. And and I mean, those guys, they they still are playing like we we just I think it was 2018 or 2017. Mm-hmm. I literally just watched them on a festival stage. Yeah. Hell yeah! So they're they're still ripping, man. It's it's really cool, and we had the opportunity to uh, we had it uh, put out to us by an agent. Uh, would have been around two thousand three, two thousand four, but uh, mm-hmm. we played San Francisco, and we got the offer to have Exodus come and play the show. They were like, "Yo, listen, we'll we're all from here." Yeah, like, yeah. We'll, we'll totally jam down with you. We're like, "What?" <laughs> I, I'll, so I'll be honest. I was the only one that that is like nerdy enough with Metallica to know about Exodus. Sure, sure. Right? So I was like, yo, dude, we got to do this. This has got to happen. <laughs> so we ended what? up having a show with Exodus, which, which was, like, massive for me. That's so killer. Yeah, my uh, my little journalist trick to uh, the first opportunity I ever had to interview Kirk, it was when I was at MTV. This was probably 2002, maybe three. It, it was uh, whatever year the Johnny Cash Hurt video was up for video of the year at the VMAs and Kurt Loder oh, wow. had, had conducted what I believe ended up being the last interview with Johnny Cash uh, for a piece that ran during the MTV news pre-show before the VMAs. And so he had, you know, the cash interview and then a couple of other producers myself included were interviewing other artists about Johnny Cash for a piece that ran with that piece. So I interviewed Chris Cornell, which was amazing about Johnny Cash and um, and I interviewed James and Kirk together and what my little uh, you know build trust with the artist right away maneuver was in my first question I referenced Kirk being an exodus <laughs> and you just oh nice 
you know, and it's like, you know, it's like 2002, 2003. I'm a, I'm a guy from MTV. I have like some shitty faux hawk. You know, I'm there to talk about Johnny Cash and the VMAs. And uh, so just immediately like drop that little Exodus nugget in. You can see both of them kind of sit up in their chairs a little like, oh, oh, this guy isn't yeah. like just some joker. Like this might be a cool conversation. And that's like right? that little moment is like everything, you know, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, you yeah, guys have no man. idea. With uh, with going back to icons, um, we uh, we ended up going to the dress rehearsal because uh, everybody had to go play. And I feel like it was kind of like an audition mm. because um, we ended up going up. Uh, we got the call. So our Wrangler took us to stage, set up, and uh, we played it. Played the medley, you know, bells into Sandman into uh, into Master of Puppets solo mm-hmm. and out. And uh, I got off stage and I was just like, I can't believe like that childhood dream where, you know, I sat in my room and pretended I was playing in Metallica. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's kind of coming true in a weird roundabout way where I have to play it for Metallica. <laughs> totally. Right? No so pressure. We're, yeah, we're, we're down on the floor and uh, our uh, sound guy is kind of playing back what, uh, what we just did. We're kind of critiquing the sounds, tones, this and that. And uh, this guy beside me, he's just like, huh, I thought that was us. And I look up and it's like, holy shit, it's James. Holy right? shit. No way. And I'm, yeah, dude. And I am looking up because he's way taller than me. Yeah. Right? And I'm like, oh, hey, man, how's it going? He's like, hey. That's well, yeah. Nice. And then, you know, we, we played for them. There were smiles. And then we uh, we ended up getting to hang out with them after uh, at the bar and stuff like that. And, um, you know, we got to, to meet the actual band that we you know, fell in love with. And at that time, um, Rob was, was fresh in. So it was just like, I want to say that was maybe the public unveiling of Rob and Metallica. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, who out of my circle didn't grow up with suicidal and infectious, like, of course, you know what I mean? And then of course, you know, he was the whiskey warlord playing for Ozzy. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, Newstead's in Ozzy's band. What? <laughs> oh, dude, and that, I I went and saw that show after they did the trade, right? Uh-huh. And uh, somebody had sent a rumor about how, like, like Newstead was fed up or he, he was mad with Sharon or something like that. And uh, it was super weird. So you got, like, stage left. Zach is going wild. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. At the back. At the back, Borden is killing it. Yeah, no puns intended at all. And then uh, Ozzy, like, he's going so hard that every jump looks like his last jump, right? And then you look over to Newstead, and his hair is, like, tied back. He's wearing, like, a a weird shirt. You know, not, like, weird, like, like weird designs or anything like that. It's just, like, a shirt that didn't really fit the mood. Right. <laughs> I know exactly you know, what was, you mean, yeah. Was, yeah, it was, like, the bathrobe of of like concert shirts like if somebody yeah. would just come out in a bathroom more like and, m- more like what he was wearing in a year and a half in the life when he's in the studio on like day 29 yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 that would be a perfect perfect comparison <laughs> <laughs> and uh and he had like the, he was reading the music like he was just reading he had a, a stand set up with sheets and he'd be playing bass and turning pages and it was like yo What's happening over there? I actually heard that it was a uh, 
almost like a protest. Mm, gotcha. Something to do with um, with uh, he was unhappy with uh, with management and how the band was how the band was being handled. So and plus he, yeah, like you know, Jason Newstead's he's a bad he's a badass guitar player. You know oh, what I mean? Oh, of course. I mean, or and, a badass and, bass player. And so nobody and nobody player. works harder. He he works so hard at his instrument and performance, like. You know, exactly. Was, yeah. And if you've ever met him, he's a fucking good dude. Yes, absolutely. Right. So something was up because like when I saw it going down, I was like, I w my immediate thought wasn't, oh, what's wrong with Jason? I was like, who's doing something to Jason? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because, yeah, he's he's got that your boy attitude, you know, went and jammed with with Voivod, right? Yeah, and in fact, um, there was a big, and this could have something to do with the atmosphere you're describing, you know, he was very much on the Voivod train, like that was his new band, you know, and yeah. when he joined Ozzy's band, they went out on OzFest, and Voivod was on the second stage, and, and I got the impression, I interviewed Jason actually at OzFest, and uh, I got the impression that it was sort of, that was kind of the trade, you know, like not that he didn't love Ozzy and, uh, you know, love those songs and everything, of course he did, but that it was really more about doing the Voivod thing and getting Voivod the hookup on OzFest via playing an Ozzy. And what's interesting is even rewinding a little bit further back, I actually did the Ozzy Introduces Jason uh, interview. Uh, it was, there was a reporter, I was there for MTV, Ooh. and then there was a reporter from CNN there, and it was at a rehearsal space in, I think, Burbank, and uh, and it was Mike Borden and Zach and Ozzy and Newstead, and they were, you know, we each had a little camera crew there, and it was like, they're going to, Ozzy and Jason are going to talk to CNN for a few minutes, they're going to talk to us for a few minutes, we're all going to film B-roll of them running through some songs, and, and that'll be that. And of course, me being the massive Metallica fan that I am, I was, you know, yeah, I'm a huge Ozzy and Sabbath fan, of course, and Faith No More, and you know everyone in that room, awesome. But I'm Metallica yeah. is like the band for me, so I'm super psyched about meeting Newstead. So there was a moment. There's a little tiny bathroom in that rehearsal space with like two urinals and a stall, right? And I uh, I go in there and I use the urinal, and then I'm washing my hands, and then Newstead comes out of the stall and he's washing his hands right next to me, and I'm like. Uh, I'm going to meet him in like five minutes and do the interview. But I mean, shit, we're, we're shoulder to shoulder right now. And so I was just right. like, I was just like, Hey man, I'm Ryan Downey from MTV. We're, you know, getting interviews like, Oh, Hey bro. And I was like, just, you know, before we do the interview and stuff, I just want to tell you, like, I'm, you know, I'm a fan from the Flotsam and Jetsam days. And I loved all the Arizona thrash bands, Atrophy and Sacred Reich. And he's like, Oh, right on, right on, run. And I was like, yeah. And Voivod's actually one of my favorite bands of all time. Like, to mention Hatros is like, that's the record for me. And, and he's like listening and nodding. And then uh, we both finished washing our hands and he goes, that's all killer, man. Um, do me a favor, bro. When we're out there with Oz, don't mention Flots or Voivod or any of that stuff. Just just talk about Ozzy. <laughs> I was like, uh, sure. Yeah, no, of course. So that was even yeah. whatever clue that is to whatever. That was That was kind of a little moment where I was like, all right, this is like a means to an end sounds more calculated. I don't know if that's the right phrase, but I mean, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Like you, you have a massive player like Newstead coming into, uh, to the camp, right. And maybe the camp just wanted to make it known, like, listen, you're, you're working for us and right. this is how it goes. Right. And that's always a hard thing when you, 
when you get somebody of a certain stature in another established act because yeah you know it's kind of like when portnoy was in event sevenfold like portnoy is such a awesome great dude and such a legend of the drums himself and then avenged has such a unique identity and there was a little bit of a feeling of like oh it's avenged plus portnoy as opposed to just like it's avenged and here's their new drummer so i understand that there's yeah. there's kind of that difficulty sometimes of that not quite fitting together the way that you would want it to so who knows i can only imagine too it's like for newstead i mean that's coming out of a 14 year marriage and then going into a a a new marriage <laughs> like immediately yeah. you know so i guess so yeah that's true <laughs> so that had to that had to be a rough transition and i think it worked out for everybody the way that it should he seems happy doing his art and he's been doing his acoustic stuff lately and so oh yeah man and no, no matter what he's he's gonna stay musical for sure but um, yeah and he's always gonna be a part I mean, of that band's legacy and that but you know and the reissues they've been doing and the merch that they have and the you know, the riff in Blackened and like, you know, he's still, his essence is still going to permeate and be part of that band, even while Rob's out there holding it down and, and contributing in his way. Yeah, man. Uh, what was your first Metallica show? First show would have actually been the Forum. Oh, rad. Like, okay. I did not get to see Metallica until, until, uh, 2003 when, uh, when they came after the uh, the Black album, which is when, which is which would have been the first time I would have been actually able to go to the concert, mm-hmm. I kind of got priced out, and uh, because everyone that wanted to go wanted to go to uh, Cox Coliseum and uh, Montreal at the same time, mm-hmm. so we were in cops coliseums out in uh in hamilton and it was on the uh the metal roses tour oh all right yeah so it was super yeah i had a couple friends that were there for the actual mishap with the pyro that's what i was just about to ask <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah, yeah and and they said like it was insane what happened yeah. like like they they were wild and we ended up actually working with um with aquarius records who had uh people that would bring so uh it was a it was owned by a guy named donald k donald Mm -hmm. who um who had a uh like kind of like a i wouldn't even say a counterpart it was just like an equal like you get the two of these guys together donald k donald and terry flood and uh they just make shit happen so like thanks to them like the stones were launched in canada oh wow you know what i mean yeah so thanks to them stuff like the the metal roses tour came through montreal and they got the show and they had to handle that whole thing like the riots and everything like that oh and, like, man yeah and man i can't i cannot tell all the stories because they are just so fucking wild <laughs> and the statue of limitations probably still isn't up you know what you know what <laughs> donald donald still carries an element of danger to him so yeah i'll, I'll keep quiet on some of those stories <laughs> yeah and uh yeah i always think about that thing in the in the vh1 behind the music where um you know i think it's newstead who's like yeah, and Guns N' Roses could have come out, played a blistering, you know, three-hour set and saved the day, but nope. <laughs> and then 
The right. Nope, we we will not be undercut. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so Icon was in 2003 as well. So was that forum show before or after that? That would, you know, what that would have been after that. So that would have been uh, right around the time that we were doing, um, like we were tracking Chuck. So that the the fourth uh, release. Yeah, I was um, talking to Derek about how I, I mentioned to him how you guys have had the opportunity to record at a lot of legendary studios. Uh, you mentioned Sound City, and but you guys have been to a bunch of cool places over the course of the band. And then this, these last two records have been made uh, primarily at Derek's studio, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, he'll uh, he'll track the drums at his place, and then. Uh, for order declined, uh, he just put the uh, the guitars out to us. Was just like, hey, check this out. This is the tempo. This is the feel. And uh, we literally, we just got up, you know, went to our studio suites. Like I, I have a suite in my house where where I just run an older version of Pro Tools and uh, throw him a DI, and he can reamp through all the legendary amps he's got at his place. Oh, right. Yeah. So it it was amazing because there was no um there was no pressure as far as time constraints so we could just sit there and i could literally like like just go deep into the track really dig in get the story there were some uh there's like the basis of some lyrics mm-hmm. uh in the uh in the in the the stems that he sent us too which are tracks that are grouped together so that uh we can reference them and play along to them Mm -hmm. and uh it was off it was the it was the best time i've had recording guitars thanks to the lack of pressure and thanks to the ease of just like waking up making a cup of coffee and going downstairs and playing guitar yeah and you're in there by yourself so you can also kind of self-edit and you know get the takes you're comfortable with and yeah that's cool yeah Absolutely. I mean, because because of time constraints, sometimes you'll have to, you know, go and like, oh, okay, this this part out of tune, so you know, do it again. But the whole the whole time, I can just be like, you know what? I'm just going to do the whole thing over again. <laughs> yeah. So who, like, and who will and who will ever know? Well, nobody's yeah. nobody's here. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So there there could be still, a, depending on what he did with the record after he got it, there could still be like one take performances on that on that record you know yeah and derek was also saying that it, it's nice for him not to have the you know he like he was saying at a studio there's always something going on like somebody's always fiddling with something or needs to go somewhere or needs to do something and you know there's a lot of waiting yeah. around and just a lot of hurry up and wait and and yeah being able to do this at your own pace is just uh such a, a great luxury of the modern tools and and then of course the experience that you guys have now versus when you're starting. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, now I can think about you know relating back to recording that guitar track, guitar track, and my you know my stepson coming down and be like, "What's the song you're playing, Davey?" <laughs> or the new or the new Sun Forty One. I go, oh, "I really like it." Then I'll go back to playing Fortnite. <laughs> I love it. That is awesome. So you guys got the call about doing the icon show and you being certainly not the only metallica fan in the band but arguably the biggest what was your you know how did you find out about that and what was your immediate reaction to it 
so with us, we uh, we ended up um, signing to Island Def Jam. So the the story kind of begins then. And mm-hmm. uh, one of our A and R's was a MTV legend, Louis Largent. Ah, okay, yeah. Right. So uh, Louis had uh, had a friend uh, that was doing a lot of production, a lot of shows for MTV, uh, Jesse Ignatovich. I re- I remember he. Wor- I, I I didn't know Jesse, but he worked like two floors up for me. Oh, dude, Jesse was such a good human being to us, and like, I I do truly think that that uh, that the chemistry between our two A and R's, Rob Stevenson, Louis Largent, and Jesse, like there was a lot of great stuff that we were able to do with MTV because of that trio. That's awesome. And uh, this was one of the ones where it was like it was a no brainer. They were like, "Do you want to do this?" And we were like, "Of course." There's no question. So uh, Jesse pitched the idea to us, and uh, we we just officially were like, yeah, I mean, we already said yes. You didn't have to go through all this. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah, and then we came up with the idea of, like, you know, we'd like to do a medley, and then Metallica came back with the idea of, why don't we walk out to your medley? Oh, my gosh. And we were like, and we were like let me get back to you. Yes. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> so... And uh, it ended up that uh, the first the first uh, version of the medley, uh, Sandman, was a little bit shorter, uh-huh. but uh, that was the song that Metallica wanted to walk out to. So there was like a back and forth with Metallica too, which you know added some pressure to the uh, to the uh, the moment of uh, like writing the medley, and then we we had to like practice the medley and sound check, and we were recording it, checking it back to see if we were playing it properly, and then you know the day comes after the dress rehearsal and uh you know we're sitting up there and i've got my bad brain scene i remember looking up into the crowd and somebody actually grabbed a picture of it and that is literally a picture of me looking into the crowd being like this is one of the most insane moments of my life (laughs) i can't believe it's come to this yeah i better not fuck this up and cone on the other side was having experience where he's like cool, I hope this wall pedal works, I hope this uh, distortion pedal works, oh, what's that guy doing? And just this fucking tough, tough-ass Metallica fan looks Cone in the eyes, points at him, and then makes the net, the, the, uh, net cutting thing across his neck <laughs> oh with his gosh. finger while mouthing the words, don't fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's actually you know at the time i'm sure it was horrifying in retrospect it's badass <laughs> right so oh, also, then, also know, knowing how hard you guys fucking brought it like that would be that oh, would be dude. scary if you guys did fuck up <laughs> trust, trust me man trust me and, and and we were both there like everybody was involved to um to get their performance right which is you know which is what the special deserves because of what that band's done for all of us but it was like Oh man, it was hairy. We were we were lucky to get away with one pass of it, and yeah, we actually uh, we were playing it uh, at um, we went into Sirius XM not too long ago and uh, rehashed it for them. Oh, cool! Is that um, yeah? Is that out there somewhere? I don't know if it's out yet, but it, it should be coming out eventually. Well, you know what makes me really excited about that is that I mentioned this to Derek. Um, I found somewhere I couldn't tell you what year it was from, but at some point in the last few years. Uh, it was Derek doing a solo show 
at Lucky Strike Bowling in Hollywood, and Zumo, right. who I think is just an incredible drummer and a super nice guy, he was he was playing drums, and they did the Metallica medley, and I was telling Derek, like, dude, I would love to hear you guys do that. <laughs> with it would just sounded so good with with Frank doing those drum drum parts and and we, and we got to talking about how you know and again going back to the thing you were saying about Kirk Lars is one of those drummers where say what you want but you yeah you can't cover a Metallica song without doing the proper fills whereas a lot of rock songs in general if you have the tempo right and the general feel you can kind of do whatever. But if you're covering "Sad but True," like you're, you got to do every one of those fills, or, or we're going to notice and it's going to sound weird. You know, and right. that says a lot have, about a drummer. Have you seen this YouTube channel where this guy he uh, just he talks about how he's going to larsify tracks? No. Okay, it's this drummer, and I don't, I don't know if he's like trolling or what, but he'll take songs like uh, "Don't Stop Believing," and he'll be like, "I'll he larsifies them." And I and whether or not he's joking around and trying to be funny, I really like the shit he's doing. And I'm like, yeah, man, Lars actually would play it like that. It's fucking <laughs> rad. <laughs> I gotta check it out. <laughs> yeah, man. And we got. I mean, they are. There are. There are band. They're. They're down to earth. I mean, he got into. Um, some trouble with the Napster thing, but even mm-hmm. he's quick to admit, like, you know, he, he made a mistake, but I think that that hit him as far as, uh, people making fun of him as a drummer. Absolutely. I feel like that has more to do with it than his actual drumming because, Absolutely. you know, listen to, listen to kill them all and tell me that isn't a badass record. And the Napster thing, there's, and I've said this on this podcast before, so I'll try to be brief for <laughs> recurring listeners' yeah. sake. He really only made one wrong turn in there, which was when Napster said, well, we don't know. We we can't take all this stuff down. I mean, people are putting it up. Like, I mean, I guess if you told us who it is and he was like, all right, and then he brought all this document. I, that was the only mistake because it that that was the moment where it looked like Metallica was going after their fans. Everything else about it and everything else about the arguments that they made. You know, Jamie Josta sells a shirt on his website that just says Lars was right. <laughs> I think it's, you know, <laughs> uh, and again, I've said this on the podcast before, so I'll say it real quick to you. But if you go on YouTube, I'm going to go. You gave me some YouTube homework. I'm going to go find that uh, Lars, Larsify guy. You go on YouTube, find this Charlie Rose episode from early 2000s. The guests are Chuck D and Lars, and they're debating Napster and the internet. And Chuck D, love him, tons of respect. He's an icon, super intelligent, great, talented. Everything Lars says comes true. Everything Chuck says was wrong. <laughs> so wow. It's really interesting to watch now with the hindsight of history, you know. It's, yeah, it's, that's true. Yeah, and Lars That's is the bad true. guy I, in the interview, and, and, and Chuck's kind of the hero. And then you watch it now, and you're like, oh, but Lars is right about everything he's saying, and Chuck was way off. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I agree with you. I think that that's, um, you know, people that criticize Lars, a lot of it comes from that place, from that moment. And he's, um, dude, nobody makes fun of themselves like those guys. Like, you know, they're 
there's in on the joke, whatever the joke may be, as as anyone. You know, they a couple of days ago they posted on Instagram that it was the anniversary of Saint Anger, and it said in the caption, uh, "Everyone's favorite Saint Anger." <laughs> so it's like <laughs> they know. <laughs> you know. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And dude, speaking of that record, yeah, like that record, I fully understand why it happened oh for sure and i'm glad it did it had to you know yeah me too me too absolutely man like everybody around like i've i've been in a situation like that where everyone around you is just like yeah that's great Mm -hmm. nobody's telling you the truth Mm -hmm. you know the the uh the band is going through personal issues like we've been there so watching that that uh documentary for me was more like holy shit like they actually let the world in on yeah. this part of what goes on, right? And the and the original so, idea was like, oh, we'll do a couple of weeks of like a little making of EPK thing. <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. And then to really, part of the power of that movie is that it speaks to people who have never been in a band but have been in some other type of creative partnership, you know, and then yeah. understand – and of course, people, everyone who's been in a band, but even uh, Joe Berlinger, one of the two directors on that, wrote a book about the making of the movie and all this stuff that was happening in his relationship with his co-director, the late Bruce Sanofsky, um, was kind of running parallel and mirroring what was happening within Metallica. And like, it, you know, and it's just it's fascinating when you when you see uh what uh you know how people from different walks of life can relate to that and you know what's also interesting about the icon thing is some kind of monster wasn't out yet and then of course we see retroactively in some kind of monster that um the icon event coming together was what finally pushed them over the cliff to get a new bass player because they were like okay we're, we're gonna do this show we need a bass player Who's it going to be? Let's have auditions. So, yeah, it, it's such a unique and strange sort of moment, yet important moment in their history that you guys were able to play a part in and, and kick off. I mean, introduce them. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, it was like the, the Mark II or the Mark III, depending on on uh, what you think of Metallica. And, right. And, and it, it led us to records like, like Death Magnetic, you know what I mean? Yep. And Hardwired, which I think is a 10 out of 10 yeah. Metallica record. Dude, absolutely. I remember being in uh, South America when Hardwired did just a single drop. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh my God, they're back. Just sitting in the hotel gym, just working out and being like, okay, rewind. Yeah. Well, I have to listen to it like four times in a row. I feel like it has the, you know, for all of its throwback elements and so on, I feel like it also it brought back those black album and load era vocal harmonies but then yeah. put that over you know master puppets and Andrews for all style stuff and so it's just like it's such a well-rounded fully fleshed out metallica record i just i love it and it really yeah, uh man. begged repeat listens i think i you know i love death magnetic when it came out but i didn't find myself going back to it a lot whereas oh i wore hardwired the fuck out <laughs> for months <laughs> Yeah, I, I I do think um, out of the two, I definitely have listened to Hardwired more, but Black Magnetic was just that step where it was like, holy shit, this is what we've been waiting for. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was the step in the right direction where it's like, okay, all right, I can't wait to see what happens. Uh, and while we're talking about the YouTube thing, and um, 
I'm actually going to have this guy uh, on the podcast pretty soon. Did you ever see, I want to say it was 2015. It's, I think it's called St. Anger Revisited. Um, but it's this kid in England who plays guitar, drums, and bass. And he faithfully re-recorded all of St. Anger, but with, uh, you know, reasonable production. <laughs> you know inoffensive tones but the same songs the same you know everything structure wise you know he didn't really edit the uh the songwriting at all and then he had a a friend of his who sounds like Hatfield sing and then he put the whole thing on YouTube the whole time you're watching it it's split into four screens and so you're watching the same kid and three of them dressed in different outfits tracking the bass (laughs) the drums uh and uh the re- lead and rhythm guitars and it's cutting back and forth and sometimes one screen's blacking out and then you see the kid the other kid also singing but it's really cool and then uh according to the description of the video uh Q Prime got wind of it and ended up giving them the uh official green light okay to have that up and uh you know we got it got the it got the seal of approval from the band but yeah it was making the rounds a, a few years ago and I actually uh actually found the the main kid and uh asked him to come on the podcast and he said he will so that's no, that's around the corner I, I have to check that out i definitely recommend it it, do, it does give you a whole new take on those songs you know hearing them in a way that isn't punching you in the face the whole time <laughs> <laughs> okay fair enough, fair enough. yeah and, and i i also uh, became a big fan of uh the song all within my hands via one of those nice. uh bridge school okay. the, the those acoustic shows they do the neil yeah. young benefit things they did it they did an acoustic version of that maybe 2007 2008 and it was like what's this song i love this song wait this is a saint anger song and it's just in that setting and in that arrangement it, it's it really gets a chance to shine that it didn't quite get on the record I can't wait to see them on the on their uh, tiny desk performance if they do one. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh so, yeah, and oh man, the, the that Star Spangled Banner was pretty cool too. Oh yeah, 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 and they just did yeah they just did it again at a NBA game right like last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't help though. Our our uh, Raptors won. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Not to date this podcast. But... I yeah right. Um, we like to be evergreen <laughs> here. This is in two, this is two thousand nine. <laughs> They did do, uh, did you ever see the Fallon thing they did with the children's instruments? No. It, it's Metallica, The Roots, and Jimmy Fallon, all all of them together playing Inner Sandman on little, like, xylophones and and toy pianos and all, like, you know, kitty instruments. Okay, that's, that sounds awesome. It is awesome. And you can tell all the Metallica guys are having fun. And everyone in the Roots and Jimmy is wearing a different Metallica shirt. And then everyone in Metallica <laughs> is wearing a different uh, Roots or uh, Jimmy Fallon shirt. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so a uh, last thing while I've got you. The press release from Hopeless for this new record talks about it uh, being the you know most aggressive Sum 41 record. Is that, is that, is that accurate? And what can you tell me about that? Man, as far as the heavy songs, this is the heaviest we've ever gone. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if you've heard the new single uh, "Out for Blood." That's the only. That's the only thing I have heard so far. Yeah, I mean, we've we uh, we've got uh, plans to release uh, two more heavy ones, and then there's a, a really really beautiful song that uh, that Derek recorded, and uh, and it was kind of like a project that uh, he wanted to do and really take care of, and 
I just think that the job he did on the song was was amazing. And I and I I love the heavy stuff, but uh, I'm I'm really excited to uh, to see whether or not we do actually go with uh, something lighter on this record as well as a release, mm, which would be cool because there are some lighter songs on on the album as well. There's some songs that are like strict groove, and then there's some stuff we've never tried before, which uh, which I can't wait to hear and I can't wait to see what people say because um, you know. We love it, obviously, because we, we were a part of it. We've had our, we had our heads down and really poured everything we have into it. So it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what people say. But, uh, to me, with this lineup, it's the best thing we've ever done. I have two, uh, all killer, no filler related questions. Yeah. The first one is Carrie King. I can only assume that was you. Uh, <laughs> tell me, uh, <laughs> tell me, tell me how that happened and, and anything else about that you remember. So we uh, we did a song on uh, Half Hour Power uh, that uh, ended up being recorded again for the Spider-Man soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Now, right. they basically came to us. They're like, yo, listen, we're going to do a Spider-Man soundtrack song uh, if you guys want. We're like, yeah, of course. Absolutely. They're like, because the budget is wild, we you have your pick of producers. So we were just like Rick Rubin, hands down. <laughs> So, dude, we, we like we got to work with Rick Rubin, and uh, they were like, "Yeah, that's that is a no brainer," because of the uh, the you know just us rapping in it, and uh, just kind of like the the Beastie Boys aspect that and flavor that we wanted to bring. Yeah, to and now and now all of a sudden, no sleep till Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and like his production style was amazing. That I to put it into terms, if anybody knows how Martin Scorsese direct the film mm-hmm. he his input with actors is like do you like what you did okay let's move on mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it, it's it is up to you to get the performance that you want down on tape so he talked to me and uh I remember so, I so, so, the, so uh, the opposite of stanley kubrick <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly right? yeah exactly. yeah so he, he like he took some time to like show me around the studio and the whole time I'm like you know this guy is just like one of the most humble dudes this is amazing he's like he explained this uh, this thing he had just gone through where he said you know um, I just went through this uh, kind of psychological treatment that I put myself through where you know I moved into a small apartment and uh, all I had was a fridge a table a light in a bed and that's all I gave myself and he's like I had to spend time with myself I had to learn who I was learn what I was thinking and I was just like whoa it's like it he just he he wasn't afraid to just go deep right away mm-hmm. and I'm the type of person that that eats that up and I, I love hearing people's stories and uh he's showing yeah. me amen by the way the studio. <laughs> Yeah, right. And he's he's showing me all these pedals. He's showing me this awesome guitar that that uh, he said he bought from uh, from a guy who used to supply guitars to the Beatles. And then he walks over to the fridge, and it's like it was like his punchline for the whole thing, right? Like he's like, and uh, I just ended up ordering all of this water for the fridge. I was like, I want an entire fridge filled with Canadian music water, and for. <laughs> 
like <laughs> it was just lined from the back to the brilliant of like Canadian music water, just this like glacier <laughs> water bottle that we had never heard of in our entire lives. And there, there had to be nothing Canadian about it, but it was just so funny to him. That is, uh, what an um, I, what an amazing, interesting character that guy is on so many levels. That's I awesome. know, right? And then sitting with him in the control room, it was just like I played the uh, the lick off the beginning, played the um, the uh, the harmony to it, and did the uh, kind of dissonant walk down into the uh, the the first verse. And he just looked at me and he was like. Is that what you want to put on the front? And I was like, yeah, that's what I like. He's like, okay. And I was like, <laughs> nobody has ever done that to me in the studio before. <laughs> that's crazy. So, yeah, that's how it ended up being that way. And uh, and uh, we were like, yo, we'd love to have Carrie King on this. And he's like, I know Carrie King. So he just got Carrie to throw a solo down on it. And um, Carrie ended up flying out to Toronto to do the video with us. Yeah. And when he showed up, we thought he was, we were so small and intimidated at that point that we were just like, yo, is this guy going to come in? Like, he's going to make fun of us. What's going to happen? Blah, 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 blah. And then he just comes in. He's like, Hey, what's up, man? How are you guys doing? <laughs> he's just <Fuck>. normal. <laughs> so I hear your new record is going to be melodic slayer. Well, fucking bring it, bring it, dude. And we're <laughs> like, Oh, this is awesome. He's like, I'll be right back. I just got some, I we just got back from Europe. I brought something back. And we're like, what's he bringing back? Right. Was it a snake? He's like, you guys drink, he's like, you guys drink booze? We're like, yeah, yeah, of course, right? It's us. Yes, we drink booze. He walks to his dressing room, comes back, and we're like, oh shit, he's gonna come out with that fucking gasolina. Like, he's gonna, he's gonna torch us up right now. Like, it's gonna be fucking heavy. He comes back with this, like, mint liqueur. Right? And we're like, Whoa! Like it just like it it didn't strike us. Just not just nice and gentle. <laughs> yeah, right. With the fucking nails Smooth. sticking out of his leather leather bracelet, it's like, <laughs> oh shit! All right, and then it hit us. And and uh, once once he brought out the uh, Wumplemans, the the hand got really easy. And uh, you know, just saw him for download and uh, got to uh, hang out with him and a couple of guys in, in Anthrax. That's a uh, at a bar in uh, Tokyo afterwards. Oh, amazing. That's amazing. It was really nice. Yeah, man. Yeah. All those guys, they just, they, 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 uh, although they have massive bands and, you know, they're known for not taking shit. They're good people, man. Like you, you can actually, they'll take the time and talk to the people that, uh, put them in the position they are today. Yeah. And that's such a good way. And you know what? You know, you mentioned that too. That's something I've heard, uh, Jason Newstead talk about when he was doing the festival circuit with the Newstead band, how he made sure to take the time to talk to people from younger bands because he remembered how important that was when he was first playing those festivals and meeting his heroes and influences and stuff. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm the one that the fan has to get rid of. It's not. It's not vice like <laughs> versa. Yeah, and it's interesting. You met. You mentioned recently hanging out with them in Japan because. Uh, the reason why I associate that Spider-Man soundtrack song with All Killer is because uh, it was on the Japanese, was it the Japanese bonus track, I believe. Yes, it was. Um, yeah, absolutely. The other thing I was going to ask you related to that record, and kind of the last thing, um, uh, he was, I, I didn't know him super well, but he was definitely a friend and uh, met him a, a bunch of times and uh, went to his memorial. But uh, Jerry Finn, 
um, produced yeah. uh, that record. Any particular Jerry Finn stories come to mind or kind of warm recollections of him? Yeah, probably my one of my fondest memories of Jerry is the fact that he was so real with you and he would just tell you exactly what was on his mind. Like that, that dude was the essence of that friend that could say anything to you. Um, I remember yeah. we, I think we played the Roxy or the Troubadour, one of the two. We had opened up for uh, a bigger band that was headlining really early on. And um, he came out and I was so proud of this performance. And I was like, yo, Jerry, what, what'd you think? Like, how's the band? He's like, you guys are fucking horrible. <laughs> you guys are horrible live. Wow. <laughs> wow. Like, whoa. I'm like, and he's like, you, you got to work on your guitar tone. I'm like, whoa. Like, well, what's wrong with it? He's like, you sound like you're slapping the strings with a mackerel. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember, I remember just being like, what the fuck? I'm bad. <laughs> but you need, but I needed that person to tell me because I had the ego to, to, uh, to go up there and, and play like I knew what I was doing. But then like literally the next day I, uh, I went out to, uh, I think it was a fries, fries electronics, but the one with uh -huh. the big UFO in the building, uh, uh, down in Burbank or something like that. Maybe. I mean, I, I'm familiar with fries, but I don't probably. Yeah. Well, I got myself a, uh, a Korg, uh, PX, I think it might have been a PX3. And it was this thing called the Pandora's Box, and it was like a tiny guitar guitar uh, processor. And uh, you could throw your CD player through it, like your disc man. Mm -hmm. So I, would, I did that, got the chord from the studio, and immediately started practicing, getting tighter. And if it wasn't for that conversation with Jerry Finn, I would not be whatever you think of my playing, I would not be the guitar player that I am today. That's amazing, especially okay. when you when you put that in context with what you said earlier about when bands sometimes reach at that stage in your career where everyone around you is like, "Yeah, this is cool, man. It's great. No, it's fine." Oh the yeah, difference there. Oh, yeah. you know, not Jerry. He had this way of letting you know the truth, no matter how harsh it was. But it would it always came from a place of love. Indeed, that's perfectly yeah, said. Man. Last thing, last, last, last thing. I told Derek this. Yeah. So I moved a couple of years ago, and I came across during the move my laminate from MTV Icon Metallica, and it's got you know MTV logo on it. Metallica, you know, it says like it, it, yeah, it's it's awesome. So I posted it on Instagram, and I tagged the Metallica guys in it, and Kirk commented on my Instagram, and he said, "No comment." <laughs> so <laughs> my <laughs> my thought there is that he probably shares the. the opinion with a lot of fans which was that the sum 41 medley was awesome and then a lot of the show was a real head scratcher <laughs> so yeah he, yeah he he better have been telling the truth to me because he said that to me at the bar afterwards oh well there you go yeah, <laughs> my man, guess yeah, is yeah. correct <laughs> <laughs> he better be telling the truth <laughs> but yeah i got it i got it thought you may get a kick out of that as well it wouldn't it wouldn't it wouldn't be such a fun story if i was talking to maybe somebody else that played the show but <laughs> knowing how well you did it's fun to tell you guys Oh, trust me. I I remember every moment of, of Sean Penn's speech. That dude was <laughs> fucking loaded. I forgot about I completely forgot yeah. about Sean Penn until dude. just now. Oh, my God. That's right, because he's dude. like buddies with Lars. 
Oh, yeah, man. remember that? Like they had to walk his ass out to the middle of the stage. Yeah, <laughs> they're like, "Yo, this dude is about to fall." Oh man! And didn't you guys do <laughs> at, the, at the very, very end of the medley? There's a there's a little moment of battery, right? Or am I remembering that wrong? The very, oh, uh, very the yeah. way you end the, master. Yeah, okay. the very end. The very end. Yeah. yeah bat, 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 bat. You got yeah, it. Yeah, a little, uh, little, little Easter egg in there for us diehards. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, hit me up anytime if there's ever anything I can do for you, because I like you. Hey, so. <laughs> same here, man. <laughs> you got a friend of me? All right, brother. Take care, man. <laughs> All right, buddy. You take care. Some 41's re-revisited take on their Metallica medley, which they performed live at the SiriusXM studios, can now be seen on YouTube. And the band's latest studio album, Order in Decline is available now. Speaking of available now, I also have a new podcast with my buddy Neil Tafflinger called Hoosier Illusion, where us two aging punk metalhead parents navigate the messy landscape of our mental health while occasionally talking about infamous Hoosiers like Johnny Ringo, James Dean, and Axl Rose. Be sure also to check out No Prize from God, which features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between, including some guests that will be of interest to Speak and Destroy listeners. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. You can find Speak and Destroy on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. And you can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, on Instagram at SuperheroHQ, and on Facebook at Ryan J. Downey, RJD. As always, you guys have been great. And I've been Ryan J. Downing.